Can we get the sermon PowerPoint up there? Great, thank you. Okay. Good morning. Anybody remember there even was a part one? Some of you? Heather, thank you. Your check is in the mail. I appreciate appreciate your ready response. So <laughs> let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you're a trustworthy God. We're grateful for the truths that your word teaches about you, about your character, about why you are trustworthy, why we can truly trust you. We pray as we explore these things together here this morning, Father, your word would penetrate our hearts and help us, Father, to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, in preparation for this message, but also just because of some of the things that I read, I read several different stories about a woman who has really, through the last several years, become sort of a personal hero of mine. Many, many, if not most of you, have heard of her. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. You heard of, many of you have heard of her. If you want to get a snapshot of the character of this woman, let's look at this quote from her. This is just one of the quotes. I'm going to read another quote from her in a little bit. But she says, God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zones. God is more interested in inward qualities than outward circumstances, things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning up my thought life, and strengthening my character. If you ever want to read anything that gives you hope and encouragement, you can read some of the things that she's written. Very powerful stuff. Now, these stories that I read this past week were featured in several different places, several different stories, and that's because 50 years ago last week, she was injured in the diving accident that made her a quadriplegic. And uh, she has absolutely no use of her arms or her legs. And, of course, that diving accident changed her life forever from that moment on. Now, if anyone you've ever heard of could ever have what we might consider a legitimate reason for not trusting God, it would be Johnny Erickson. She's totally dependent on other people for everything. Can you imagine that? She lives in constant pain. Now, a lot of us know what it's like to live in constant pain, but for 50 years, 50 years she's lived in constant pain. How can that be a good thing in any way? Many in our culture would wonder why she'd even want to live with such a poor and painful quality of life. But she has a vital ministry to the disabled, and suffering people of all kinds. She's been an inspiration to millions, including me. But why? Why would a quadriplegic who can't do anything for herself inspire anyone? Because she points to the one that she trusts in, and she perseveres in that trust. And when I read about her struggles, that's inspiring to me. She trusts in God despite her pain, despite her disability, and she doesn't allow her handicap to keep her from the service to the kingdom of God that God has called her to do. She's thought deeply about God's plans, about God's purposes, and about the purposes of suffering or adversity in the lives of believers, and her conclusions have been very biblical. She totally gets the three-legged stool of trust that we'll recall in a moment, and we introduced that a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, in part one of this two-part message, Trustworthy, we looked at this great analogy, and that was from 
the late navigator's writer Jerry Bridges. Some of you have read some of his things. He's probably best known for his book called The Pursuit of Holiness. That was one of the first books he wrote, another great book. But this was from his book called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. He asks some very important questions in this book, and I want to ask ourselves these questions this morning, and hopefully we can explore together some biblical answers for some of these questions. One of the things he asked is, can you trust God? And he added that this question has two possible meanings embedded in it, depending on how you phrase it, in other words, on which words you emphasize. And one of those is, can you trust God? Emphasis on the word trust. In other words, is he trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Is he dependable in times of adversity? But the second meaning is also critical. Can you trust God? The emphasis on the word you. In other words, what do you believe about God? And do you have the kind of deep relationship with him and such confidence in how he reveals himself in his word that you truly believe that he is not only with you, but he is working in the trials and the adversity of any kind. And even though you may not at any given moment see any evidence of his presence, any evidence of his power, any evidence of his wisdom, any evidence of his love. And perhaps just as hard is when we don't have any understanding of his purposes. We see these things happen and we say, why? I don't understand. So as we explored this idea last time, we learned these three essential truths about the great God we serve, these three truths that make up this three-legged stool. That's the illustration you see on the screen. This three-legged stool, stool, it's a school too, this three-legged stool of trust. Without believing any one of these individual truths about God, we cannot truly trust Him, especially in any kind of adversity in our lives. It's like trying to sit on a two-legged stool. It falls over. Have you ever tried to sit on a two-legged stool? It doesn't work. So just believing in two out of the three won't work. So to remind you of what we explored last time, the three truths that we must believe in, we must believe in all three of these truths to truly trust God. First of all, God is sovereign. Secondly, God is infinite in wisdom. And third, God is perfect in love. And we looked at this idea expressed another way, and that other way was this. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. So last time, we spent much of the message majoring on one of the three legs of the stool, and that's God's sovereignty. This morning, I want to spend a little bit more time looking at God's wisdom and God's love, and then we're going to see how these things all work together, how very interconnected they are to make God absolutely trustworthy, completely reliable for all of us who seek to trust in Him in anything and in everything that God would bring our way, that life brings our way. Now, reading about Johnny Erickson this week, she was recalling the journey she took. You know, she was 17 when this accident happened, and she was paralyzed. And uh, you can imagine a 17-year-old, and all of a sudden you're facing a life 
totally paralyzed. She took a journey from dismay to anger and despair. But eventually, this journey took her to trusting God in her disability. She looked at some things that we noted in part one, and she said, in one of the articles I read, she said, back in the 70s, my Bible study friend Steve Estes shared 10 little words that set the course for my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Steve explained it this way. Johnny, God allows all sorts of things he doesn't approve of. God, for example, he said, hated the torture, injustice, and treason that led to the crucifixion. Yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. In the same way, God hates spinal cord injury. That's the injury that she experienced that paralyzed her. Yet he permitted it for the sake of Christ in you as well as in others. Like Joseph, when he told his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, last time, a couple weeks ago, we looked at both of these things that she mentioned. We looked at the sovereignty of God at work in the life of Joseph and the sovereignty of God at work in the crucifixion of God the Son, Jesus. Something God can do and we can only hope to be able to see but can't possibly bring about on our own is how seemingly random and unrelated events in a life, our lives, other people's lives, can bring about God's plans and purposes. A prayer we often pray, James even prayed this in our prayer time this morning, God, accomplish your purposes. Accomplish your purposes in this life or in this circumstance. We pray that way a lot, and that's a good biblical prayer. And because God is infinite in wisdom, He can do this. He can do this. It's amazing. It'll be even more amazing to us in eternity when we finally see and understand His purposes in causing or permitting much of the adversity in our lives and in the lives of those we love. Joseph, for example, sold into slavery only to rise in position and then thrown into prison. And again, after that, he rose into an important position in Egypt. And this important position allowed him to save the lives of many, as it tells us in Genesis chapter 50. When he was thrown into a pit by his own brothers, no less, then sold into slavery, Who but an infinitely wise God could have planned or even foreseen how this event, followed by all the other incredible coincidences, if you believe in that, ended up where it did? Our all-wise God, as Jim Garrett has said before, is the great chess master. While we are able to contemplate maybe our next move, maybe our next couple of moves, He's already at the end of the game, and he's already won because he's wise, because he knows the best way to get to that winning place, because he's sovereign. He's able to make it happen, and even as we looked at last time, through the freely chosen decisions of people. What wisdom, what wisdom, what power in his infinite wisdom, he always knows what's best. Some of the older folks here may remember a program called Father Knows Best. Well, folks, our Father knows best. 
He doesn't know just good or better. We can sometimes discern good or better, and sometimes we can discern, uh, discern best, but he always knows what's not just good or better. He always knows what's best. Our problem with trusting God is often in the way that he chooses to do things, the means through which he chooses to accomplish his purposes. We struggle with this because it hurts sometimes, doesn't it? It just hurts. We look at what God is doing, we don't understand, and it hurts physically or emotionally or both. Or we struggle because it doesn't seem to make any sense to us and we don't understand. But the way he does things, the means he uses to accomplish his purposes are perfect and they are infinitely wise. Paul, the Apostle Paul marveled at this in Romans chapter 11. We're going to read here in a a moment. And before that, he spent quite a bit of space considering God's ultimate plans for salvation. And he considered the really amazing, almost, wow, I can't understand how it happened that way. The way God chose to accomplish this. We read this in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So rather than insist, God, explain this to me. Rather than just throwing up his hands in total dismay, Considering God's wisdom caused Paul to fall down in worship and praise. Now, of course, he was praising God for his wisdom and the seemingly incomprehensible way that he brought about salvation. And that's a good thing. So it's a lot easier to praise God for something wonderful like salvation than it is to praise him in the midst of something that's hard. But you know what? We have biblical examples of things that are hard and people praise God too. Job, for example, he landed in praise after he experienced something hard. A song we sing here sometimes reflects Job's response to God's ways, God's wisdom. In Job 121, it's a paraphrase, but we sing, He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? We see God's infinite wisdom announced, we see it celebrated, and we see it praised throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture. If, we ever, if you ever really wanted to do a study on God's infinite wisdom, that would be a really neat thing to do. So we're going to carefully consider, just for a moment, just a few passages here this morning together. Let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul also wrote this in the same book to the Corinthians a few chapters later. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So here we are comparing human wisdom with God's wisdom, and it's puny. That's what these passages are telling us. We read in Romans chapter 16, verse 27, and here's where God's wisdom is celebrated. To the only wise God, the only wise God, it says, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we read in Jude chapter 1, verse 25, to God our Savior, who alone is wise. There we see it again. God alone is wise. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So we see wisdom celebrated, praised throughout the Word of God. And these are just a few examples. God always knows what is best for us. And He always knows what is the best way to bring that about. A quote from Jerry Bridges, God never has to agonize over a decision. We do, don't we? We often agonize over decisions. He does not even have to deliberate within Himself or consult others outside of Himself. His wisdom is intuitive, it's infinite and infallible. And as it says in Psalm 147, verse 5, His understanding has no limits. Mine does. (laughs) His doesn't. God's understanding has no limits. So even as we often deliberate and we agonize over decisions or struggle through any kind of adversity, we must do it in an attitude of trust, trusting in God's wisdom to lead us, to accomplish what He plans, to accomplish what He purposes in our lives. So here's where the wisdom leg of that three-legged stool must stand and we must believe it. And when it doesn't stand or when we struggle to believe, we inevitably end up with the question of why. The question of why. The reason we ask why is that often we just don't understand what any given adversity in our lives has to do with our good or God's glory. But Jerry Bridges asked this question, which I think is a good one. Is not the wisdom of God, thus the glory of God, more eminently displayed in bringing good out of calamity than out of blessing? Think about that. Isn't that true? We read in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. How many of you have ever been able to say that? That's a hard... It's good for me. It's good for me that I was afflicted. Can we say that? Can we believe it? It's good for us to be afflicted with some sort of adversity so that we might learn from God. We can learn God's will for our character intellectually through reading and studying the Scriptures. And we should do that, 
Jerry Bridges says. This is where change begins as our minds are renewed. The Word of God renews our minds. It teaches us how to, it gives us perspective, doesn't it? But real change down in the depth of our souls is produced as the tenets of Scripture are worked out in real life. This usually involves adversity. We may admire and even desire the character trait of patience, but we will never learn patience until we have been treated unjustly and learn experientially to suffer long. That's the meaning of patience, the one who treats us unjustly. Now remember this from Scripture. Sixteen times Job asked God why. Sixteen times in the book of Job. He is persistent in his questioning of God and sometimes even accusatory toward God. But remember this too, and I found this to be a very profound point. God never answered Job's why questions. Did you notice that? He never answered the why questions. Instead, what he answered is who. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you who. The big who. Here's who I am, so trust me. That was God's message to Job. God's message to Job was, I have more wisdom and understanding than you're even capable of. So trust me, I'm all wise. That was his word of the Lord to Job. Can we only trust God if he explains to us our adversities and his purpose in them? Let's think about that. Is that the only time we... You've got to explain it. If you, if you explain it, God, then I'll trust you because then I'll get it. Well, here's what he says to me. I don't want to project this on you, so I say this this way. Am I so arrogant to think that even if he does explain that my mind is not so clouded by my dying sin nature that that will somehow be satisfying to me? What if he does explain it? Is it going to be satisfying to me? My mind is finite. I don't get it. I don't get everything. God does not owe me any explanations. He didn't owe Job, right? Because he's God and I'm not. In Job's final response to God, here's what he says in Job chapter 42, verse 3. Job says, you asked, saying to God, you asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now, he said, things too wonderful for me, things that I did not know. Wonderful here doesn't mean really cool or great, okay? Though that could be part of it in a given situation. It might be wonderful in that way too. But wonderful here means full of wonder, awe-inspiring, amazing, even mind-blowing, huh? King David said something similar about the wisdom of God. In Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. There's a recognition there, isn't there? There's a recognition there that there are things beyond my wisdom, but never beyond God's. So here's where we need the wisdom leg in truly finding God trustworthy. We must come to the place where we can honestly say, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't get your wisdom, but I will trust you. Even though I don't get it, I will trust you because you're trustworthy. 
Now, last time we also saw that the idea of God being all-powerful, okay, and even infinitely wise, as we've been looking at, would only be a truly scary thought to us if he did not also love us. Someone who knows everything and can do everything could be a monster if he didn't also truly love us. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, part of our problem with understanding and trusting in God's love is because we are immersed in a culture that has a very twisted version of what is truly loving. Let's think about what it means to be perfect in love as God is, as his word declares him to be. Now, in our context, and as we reflect in some ways the love of God, loving someone doesn't always mean doing what makes people we love happy. Let me say that again. Loving someone doesn't always mean doing what makes people happy, but it always means doing what is best for them as far as that's in our wisdom and our power to do. Now, we're not all wise and we're not all powerful. So what is loving? Could loving someone include participating in or actually causing something which might actually prove painful to them? The simplest and one of the most satisfying examples to me is a parent. A parent who takes a young child to, let's say, get a vaccine or maybe takes a young child to have some sort of a needed surgery. Now, with my adult experience and my adult knowledge and my adult wisdom gained over all these many, many years, we know that taking our child to get a vaccination, even though that causes momentary pain, is ultimately for their good. It will protect them from a given illness, or it will cure some problem if it's a surgery, right? But the child can't understand that. The child can't understand that. All they know is that mommy or daddy took them to a man or a woman who stuck a needle in their arm, and it hurts. That's all they know. They don't get the no pain, no gain idea. They don't understand that. But we as parents have the wisdom to take them to the doctor for their health. We have the power to get them there whether they want to go or not. We're bigger than them, right? That's where we get the power sometimes. We're just bigger than them and stronger than them. And we have the love to do it for them. Even though we know that it will be momentarily painful to them. And honestly, if you're a parent, you know it's also painful for you as the parent because we don't want to watch our kids hurt, right? Another analogy I think of is when a family member has to withhold assistance from a substance abuser, even though that action brings pain to that person. It might feel easier to that family member to let their loved one continue on the path that they're on, not confront them, keep helping them with whatever it is that they're helping them with, just for the sake of peace. But inevitably, this is not a truly loving choice because it inevitably will backfire. True love usually requires making the tough choice and letting that substance-abusing family member experience the pain of the moment for their ultimate well-being, for the purpose of moving them toward recovery. It's interesting to me also to realize that these things cause pain both for the one on the receiving end 
of these loving acts, that is the vaccinated child, for example, or the substance abusing family member, and also the one who's the inflictor of the pain, the parent or the family member, both feel pain, both feel grief. Because as parents, as family members, as friends, as brothers or sisters, even as fellow believers, as ones who love these people in our lives that we're trying to help, we don't want to somehow contribute to their pain. But we do it in certain instances. Why? Because we love them. We do it because we love them. You know what? God understands this. Let me read Lamentations chapter 3, 32 and 33. It says, Though he brings grief, he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. Verse 33, For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. Another version of verse 33 is a little bit more literal translation. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So the idea here is that God doesn't really want us to be afflicted. He doesn't really want us to feel this pain. He has to allow some things to be consistent with his love. If he didn't allow it, he wouldn't be consistent with his love. But again, this is really hard for the world to see, isn't it? That's why you see people like the rabbi. You remember the rabbi we mentioned a few weeks ago who wrote the book about bad things happening to good people. We quoted that book a couple weeks ago. Now, this rabbi dismissed God's sovereignty. In other words, God isn't all-powerful. Essentially saying that there were things that God could just not control because he couldn't reconcile a God who allowed seemingly bad things into the lives of people he loved. So what he did is he elevated the world's squishy idea of what it means to love, which is not the picture the Word of God gives us of his love, And he voted God's omnipotence, God's all-powerful nature, he voted that off the island. Now, describing this cultural idea of love, one writer wrote this, and I thought it was a great example. He writes, One of the axioms that our stiff-necked generation has been able to establish in granite is the idea that love is to be defined as that which leaves all our nice emotions in a state of unruffled tranquility. I like that. Because don't we see that, huh? If you say or write anything that could be taken amiss, and I would add, if you do anything that could be taken amiss, or which clearly qualifies as double plus unnice, then you are unloving, or just one step up from that may plausibly be thought to be unloving. Love is defined for us in our culture not by Moses, Samuel, David, Isaiah, and Christ, but rather by a decoupaged version of that Footprints poster. Everybody knows the Footprints poster, right? Oh, it's love. It's all wonderful. It's squishy. It's, you know, right? But thankfully, love is defined for us in the Word of God. And love absolutely must start with and end with the cross of Christ. Any consideration of love in a biblical way, that doesn't mean there's not more to say about love in Scripture, but the foundation of the love of God is revealed in the sacrifice that Christ made for us. That defines love as a sacrificial decision to do what's best for the ones we love, even at great personal cost, and sometimes even if that loving act brings pain 
to the ones we love. So we don't get to define love in just any old way we want. God designed love. God is the author of love. And indeed, the Word tells us that He is love. Jesus is love personified, love illustrated, love incarnate. And that love must be most powerfully demonstrated and considered on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we ever, if we ever doubt God's love, we must look to the cross. The Apostle John said this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if the cross does not convince us of God's love, I don't know what will. John 3.16, one of everybody's favorite verses, everybody's memorized this, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. As Jim Garrett's helpfully pointed out, the words so loved in this familiar passage don't mean so much. In other words, God loved the world so much. They mean loved like this. In other words, this is how God loved the world. He gave. He sacrificially gave His only Son. So when we ponder God's love, we can diminish our understanding of His love without first considering our sin, what made that sacrifice necessary, the sin that God wiped out on the cross of Christ. So in the midst of adversity, when it's hard to trust God and we're tempted to doubt this leg of the three-legged stool, we must always go back to the cross. Always. The reasoning's like this. If God loved me enough to give His Son to die for me when I was His enemy, clearly, certainly, without a doubt, He loves me enough to care for me now that I'm His child. The truth is, we don't deserve one bit of God's goodness to us. A speaker said once, anything this side of hell is pure grace. So when we're tempted to question God's love. We need to see who we are apart from the love of Christ, the one who redeemed us from sin and death and hell. We read in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He also, not also, with Him graciously give us all things? So the idea again here is that if God's love was sufficient for my greatest need, which is my eternal salvation... Surely it's sufficient for my lesser needs, any challenges that I would face in this life. Another important factor in considering the love of God is an element of our trust in Him. God's love for us is in Christ. He doesn't look within me. He doesn't look within you for a reason to love us. He loves us because we're in Christ. He sees His children as united to His Son. He sees us as clothed in righteousness. So He loves us, not because we're lovable at all, but because Jesus has, by His sacrifice, made us love-worthy, lovable. When we have doubts, when we're tempted to question God's love, as we struggle to fully trust Him, remember this, God's love for us cannot fail any more than His love for His Son 
can fail. That should give us grace. That should give us confidence knowing that. But we still sometimes question the goodness of God. Think of this. To question the goodness of God, the love of God, is in essence to imply that man is more concerned about goodness than is God. To suggest that man is kinder than God is to subvert the very nature of God. It is to deny God, and this is precisely the thrust of the temptation to question the goodness of God. So the parent who takes his or her child to the doctor for a painful shot or treatment of some sort doesn't take the child in spite of the fact that the parent loves the child. The parent takes the child and allows the pain because he loves the child. Finally, we can't escape one of the basic principles of the Christian faith described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Where is our faith? Is our faith in the God who revealed his character, who revealed his wisdom, who revealed his sovereignty, who revealed his love in his word? Or is it in the circumstances of our lives, the seemingly random good and bad things that happen to us? Or is it in ourselves, our ability to discern, our ability to cope with things, with life? Who can we trust? Who is truly trustworthy? Well, before we close, I want to read a passage, a longer passage from Ephesians, because in this passage, I think Paul attempts an answer to this question. And interestingly, if you listen carefully, it includes all all of the three legs of the three-legged stool of trust. So listen for all three, power or sovereignty, wisdom and love. Listen for all three as I read this passage from Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So we see in this passage of praise, we see the leg of the stool of God's love, right, used in that word. We see it in his wisdom. We see the word wisdom used there. And in the words, purpose of his will, and in the words, counsel of his will, we see his sovereignty, we see his power, his ability to do what in his love and in his wisdom that he purposes to do. In the words, purpose of his will and counsel of his will. So one commentator noting that the wisdom of God will be made known through the church, as this passage also tells us, said that the church is the theater of God's wisdom. Isn't that a cool thing to think? We're the theater 
we the church, the church of Christ, the theater of God's wisdom. So let's ask ourselves again this morning what we asked earlier at the beginning of this part two of this message. Can you trust God? Is he trustworthy? Can you trust God? If he's trustworthy, do you have the depth of relationship with him? Do you have the depth of relationship with him that you can truly trust that God in his love always wills what is best for us? That God in his wisdom always knows what is best and in his sovereignty he has the power to bring it about? That's what we need, folks. We need to believe. We need to hang on to all three of those things if we want to truly trust God, and especially if we want to trust God in adversity. It's easier to trust God when things are cool, right? But when we're struggling, when we have challenges, when we have pain, when we hurt, and we're hanging on to God by our fingernails, that's the best we can do. We need to believe these things to truly trust Him. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the picture that Your Word paints of Your character. Your Word reveals You to be a trustworthy God who is perfect in love, who is all-powerful and sovereign, and who is all-wise. So, Father, help these truths to sink deep into our hearts and deep into our spirits as each of us faces challenging things in our lives. We face pain. We face suffering, Father. And calling it anything less than suffering would be diminishing it, Father. But we do face these things. But we know, Lord God, that You are trustworthy. So, Father, we want to say that we can trust God. And we want to say that we, we can trust God. Build in us that kind of relationship with You that allows us to trust in you in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of any adversity that we face. We commit this time to you and thank you, Lord, for your character, for your wisdom, for your power and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.